certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. CSI officers have described how they stripped Bear, the car driven by Bradley Edwards back in the 90s, searching for blood and stains. Good to have your company for day 66 of Claremont in Conversation. Natalie Bongiolo, Tim Clark and Damien Cripps with you today. So Tim, this is the car we were speaking about in yesterday's podcast. Yes, Nat, a 1996 Holden Commodore VS Series 1 or 2 executive model, Um, but it didn't look very executive in the pictures that we saw today because it was obviously more than 20 or nearly 20 years since Mr Edwards had been driving it around uh, as a Telstra vehicle. It had gone through several sets of hands by then. Um, and was being used at that time um, as a vehicle for a gardening uh, business uh, up in Chidlow, which is up in the hills of Perth. Um, And as we said yesterday, it was a minor miracle that uh, police managed to find it at all, but find it they did through the use of the the VIN number and various other um, uh, identification numbers. They managed to track it through um, motoring records, and, and there it still was. And today we got into the what, what the police did with it after they seized it. And that was uh, gone through in great detail um, as it was at the time, because it, it took police three days to break basically break this car down piece by piece, almost down to the nuts and bolts, certainly down to the, the bare shell of the car um, as they slowly dismantled it, looking for any clues that might link it to um, Jane Rimmer and Kira Glennon. And there were many photographs shown of this process in the courtroom today. Can you describe some of those photographs for us? Yeah, dozens actually. Matt, I think we counted nearly 90 photographs tendered um, through the witness. And the witness was uh, a, a sergeant, um, a CSI sergeant in, uh, in WA police. And it was these photos were taken over the course of the three days. And what you saw was for the very start of the process when the car was had just been rolled into the into the garage at Midland with the seals still on the doors and then slowly but surely uh, every single part of that car was basically taken off it from the inside of the doors to the seats to the seat covers to the shroud of the gear stick to the carpet to the underlay of the carpet to the spare tire um, and every little detachable piece um, in between really yeah, I and mean, were, as I say, they were very, very detailed photographs. Some of them quite eerie because, um, if prosecutors are right, then the inside of that car and the view, or some of the view that we saw of the inside of that car today, would have been the the last thing that that Kira and Jane saw on the last night of their not lives. Yeah, I mean, in my mind, I have this picture of you know a car and and people dressed in their um, you know forensic gear going over this car with with lights and and tweezers and magnifying glasses, and it almost does conjure up this image of of what you would see on a TV show such as CSI. That's exactly right, and we saw glimpses of the uh, of the bunny suits that we mentioned um, with uh, with Brendan on Monday um, and the gloves and the lights and everything that went with it and uh, 
the log of what they did to that car um, stretched into the hundreds of pages. It was there were very long days, three days in in succession. Many people doing many different things. So you had Chem Centre looking for fibres, you had Pathwest looking for biological material, you had police. Um, do, doing their own searches, you had polylight examinations, alternative light source examinations, anything and everything that you can imagine um, being done to this car um, that could possibly um, glean some sort of evidence from it was done. Um, and today we saw um, the, the the results of those, or, the, or, or certainly the process of that, um, uh, through these many, many photographs um, that that were shown in court and, and tendered as uh, exhibits. And we know about the fibres uh, that they were searching for, but in terms of any DNA evidence, um, obviously they were looking for for blood or um, any kind of um, stains. Was there any discussion on that and what they may have found or what they were actually looking for? Yeah, so there was it was any biological um, or, or physical um, presence of of either. Jane or Kira, or in fact Sarah as well. Even though the the car itself um, was uh, only assigned to Mr. Edwards um, in the April of 1996, it was pointed out by Mr. Jovic during cross examination of the witness that in fact they were searching for any signs of Sarah in that car as well. So, and as you say, now it was any biological or physical. Or material but in particular blood um they they were doing the presumptive tests for blood so any stains that looked like or so the, the stains that were um, visible to the naked eye that might have been they swabbed those and then the alternative light source um anything that that appeared under that was also um swabbed and then sent off for this presumptive test for blood in particular um and as we've said the absence of that being mentioned would suggest that it wasn't found. It wasn't specifically said nothing was found, but I'm sure if there had been something found, it would have been mentioned by now. So um, so those tests um, didn't turn up um, the hoped for breakthrough. But as we've mentioned before, what was found due, when this um, piece by piece dismantling of this car was done was some of the blue fibres um, that, uh, that are said to have come from Mr Edwards's work where and also being found on the bodies of Kira and Jane. So this car really is all about the fibres. Damien, have you ever been involved in a case that is uh, reliant on fibre evidence? Is it something that pops up very often in a trial? Um, Nat, I think that this, um, in relation to me having any dealings with cases with specific, um, specifically associated with fibres, or fibres being specifically associated with the issues surrounding the trial. It's one of those cases where um, I've had so many cases over the course of the years that it'd be difficult to uh, exclude that I ever had. I can't remember anything specific right at the moment, but what what I can say is that um, by virtue of police investigating cases, they are expending energy to try to get to an answer. And this comes back to the principle that we've been talking about all the way through, that that it's the uh, prosecution's responsibility to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. So they are looking for anything they can get their hands on to give them an answer about somebody who might have committed an offence. When it it comes to defence lawyers, 
we're not so vigorously looking for answers, if, if, if you can imagine it that way. So um, it's less likely for a defence lawyer to be in a position where they're relying on fibres to provide an answer or um, to provide a, a, an alibi, if I could put it that way, um, for one of their clients. Whereas with prosecutors and people who are investigating, um, they're looking for things. So they're more inherently going to find things along the journey of the search and, and, and therefore, i.e. fibres have, have been found and they become central to this case. Um, so in answer to the question, I think it's really common for um, prosecution and investigators to rely on fibres. I think it's more common for um, defence type personnel, if I could put it that way, um, to be looking for reasons, alternative reasons why those fibres might be there. But ultimately the answer is, they're always around, uh, fibres are always around and, and uh, often the centre of the question about someone's guilt or otherwise. Yeah, it sort of does raise a question that's been mulling around in my mind and that is that given the DNA evidence that is already said to be the critical part of the prosecution case, I wonder how important is this fibre evidence in reality? In, in relation to this case, one of the things that was at the forefront of my mind when Tim was just explaining um, the, the court proceedings today is that every time something comes up in this case, and in many cases, it just opens up another pathway for the, the decider of fact to have to deal with. Every time mm. something new comes up, it's just another thing that person's got to deal with. And, and so in, in relation to the fibres in this case, although... It seems that it's everybody's view that the DNA is so central in this matter. The fibre just adds another um, layer, if you will, of consideration. Another thing that um, the justice has got to consider when he's trying to come to determinations, not just about the ultimate finding, but many things leading up to that. So it's, I, I think although it's not what we would call the central issue here, it's certainly going to um, create a further dilemma for the person that's making a decision. And when I say dilemma, I don't mean that it's bad. It's just another thing that they've got to add, add to their list of things to do. It's a little like, you know, you, you're throwing everything in, including the kitchen sink. Absolutely. If you want to prove something beyond a reasonable doubt, the last thing you want to do is leave the one thing out that might have been, if I could put it this way, the straw that broke the camel's back in terms of proving beyond a reasonable doubt. Yes. Uh, Tim, what was Bradley Edwards' um, reaction to seeing this car that he had driven around in the 90s um, on the screens today? Yeah, look, uh, it was it was obviously of interest to him. He um, he did uh, pay particular attention when some of the some of the photographs were being um, were being displayed. But um, it's got to be said, it had gone through several pairs of hands um, after Mr. Edwards um, had stopped using it, and this is this was obviously a, a work vehicle, so it was owned by Telstra. Um, it, but it was around about ninety eight where it, it became didn't become his car anymore and then um it it, it was sold um several times and also had a change of number plate um in that time before it eventually found its its final owner so so yeah um as um as we've uh, as we've said pretty much every time that question has been asked he doesn't give he doesn't give much away um and it, it, i've got to say it was um at, at times a little bit tedious having to look at 90 pictures of the <laughs> same vehicle i just bought myself a new car and i don't think I've, i looked at uh, half that many um, 
pictures before um, uh, shelling out quite a lot of money for it. So, uh, so yeah, but, um, it, it's it's again one of the processes that has to be gone through um, in terms of getting every piece of information before Justice Hall um, before he um, ma- makes his mind up. And as Damien says, the fibers they're probably not right at the top of the uh, the shopping list of, of but they, they, they'd be in the top five certainly in, in the terms of things that Justice Hall has to weigh up because um, they are if, if the prosecution um, uh, you know does what it says it's going to do they are physical links between Mr Edwards and both those those women which 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 is a very strong string um, to, to draw because it, 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 it puts them all together. Um, which is why this case is being heard altogether. Yeah. And is Justice Hall going to release any of those photographs to the media? Just just before your intrepid producer rang me, Nat, um, I got five or six cents from me, so yes, well, there will be some um, publicly available later later this evening. If uh, anyone's interested, they'll be on the west.com.au. And the one that might really um, catch people's eye was the very last photograph to be shown in court, actually. So when the uh, investigators were doing this um, alternative light source on the car, they did it on the outside of the car. And that actually revealed the Telstra logo that used to be on the side of the car. It wasn't visible to the naked eye, but when you put it under this alternative light source, there it was—a sort of ghost image of this of the Telstra logo that um, that that had been obviously displayed on that car for some time. And that also tied into way back before Christmas when we heard from all those living witnesses you might remember that some of them very clearly and very distinctly remembered a telstra logo being on the side of a white white station wagon that um that approached them at night in claremont and offered them a lift so once again it's just it's just another piece of the enormous jigsaw um, that is taking many many months to uh, to put together that's right. Now, could I, I just cut in? Just want to ask Tim something. Sorry, just Tim, in relation to um, what the court has heard, um, mm. one of the things you mentioned before was that one of the ways that they trace this vehicle all the way back is through the VIN number, which makes sense, mm-hmm. and I'm sure the listeners would understand that as well. Basically, there's a serial number on the car that is, is dealt with when it, the car's produced, and then it travels all the way along the journey um, with the car, unless it gets removed for whatever reason, which you're not meant to do. Did the court hear evidence of that journey of the VIN number? Uh, no, no, we haven't got there yet, Damien. Um, wh- whether we're going to, um, we're not sure. We were certainly were shown pictures of the VIN number um, as it was displayed on the inside of uh, when you when you put the bonnet up um, and under the bonnet. Um, but what we have heard previously is is how this uh, this journey to find this car actually began and it began with when the the the, the name popped up out of the, uh, the 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 database via the you know via the hollywood uh, fingerprint um, and then they had a name and they'd been holding on to these fibers that had been found on jane and kira's hair for many many years earlier actually um the it, they'd been parked is what is how Ms. Barbara Gallo described it in the opening. So they had the fibers, but they didn't have a source. They didn't know where they came from. Um, and then later on, the chem center um, did um, pinpoint the gray fibers as coming from this make of car. So when they then had 
Mr. Edwards's name, a, a, a section of the investigators went off and tried to trace any vehicles that he might have come into contact with over that year. That's where they went back to the Telstra records, found that he had been assigned this Commodore at the appropriate time, got the VIN number via the Telstra records and then went um, and investigated it that way and lo and behold it was still it was still operational so um, so we haven't we have the story but we don't have all the pieces if that answers your question Damon they haven't gone through the journey yet um, uh, from an investigative point of view but that's where we understand it will go and um, when we get there. So, Damien, are you alluding to proof that this is, in fact, the actual Telstra car that Edwards drove? Well, interestingly enough, thank goodness this is a podcast because that's probably a question that would have gone terribly wrong if I was uh, a defence lawyer in a case like this and (laughs) I, I had been hoping to cause some reasonable doubt as to where the car, the source of the car, because Tim's explanation of it is very good because... My thought was, well, okay, we've got a car that's got some fibres in it and it's the prosecution are making some assertions about what the source of those fibres are and that there's a car, but which was very beneficial. When Tim just explained then, um, I think I became aware and the listeners would have become aware that how, that, how we got to that car, and some of the listeners might have already been aware of that, but I wasn't. So mm. that's how we get to the car. And it's almost, I don't know what your thoughts are, Tim, but it almost comes to me that that's a better um, direction for for the the continuity of their car, if I could put it that way, than actually going mm. through the VIN number because it's um, once you've found a person that comes becomes a suspect, you can then actually go through the motoring records, as Tim put it, and find out all the vehicles that they've had over the course and if one falls into that category, which it seems in this case that it has, well, you know, that, that sort of seems to narrow down a lot of the possibilities. Yeah. Tim, did anything interesting come out of cross-examination of um, Stephen Marks? Not a great deal, I've got to say, that It didn't go um, too far because it's very hard to cross-examine someone about pictures that they were... Uh, so the, 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 these were... Uh, I don't want to undermine Sergeant Marks's um, role in the investigation because it was obviously very um, fruitful and, and very central at the, at the time. But um, his role in, in the court process was to bring in the photographs through him as that witness, if I can say that. So his, his actual evidence as to what, what was done was, was mostly through these photographs um, even though he was taken to his log at various stages to show what was done when so now the cross-examination wasn't exactly um, um, fulsome that but um, uh, Mr. Jovic did ask some questions as to um, uh, as to w- what was done and, and the, the, the reason for it um, he answered them um, and then uh, and then he was on his way. Mr. Jovic also cross-examined the forensic scientist Belinda Evans that we spoke about yesterday. I'm guessing she was predominantly quizzed about contamination. Yes, continuity, contamination, those um, those those type of issues, um, as as most of the scientific uh, cross examinations have been, um, and she was also um, most pointedly asked about um, uh, cleanliness, um, contamination possibilities. Um, 
what uh, things were done in between different examinations. In this case, Jane's um, hair, um, whether they changed gloves, whether whether you know the surfaces were wiped down, and all those type of things. Just just ticking off those um, boxes. Um, and then her last question was, how, how do you usually get to work in 2009, which when this examination of Jane's hair first occurred, she said um, her bike or her car. Um, and I'm getting the idea that these witnesses maybe know this question is coming now <laughs> right. because um, she paused quite dramatically and then said, I owned a Ford uh, XR5, Ford Focus XR5. She was very, very clear and very, very strong in her memory, <laughs> um, which was um, uh, a, a, yeah, a tiny bit of light relief because uh, this um, diminutive um, uh, forensic scientist um, uh, smashing around Perth in a, in a hot hat brought to uh, brought to mind some uh, some images that um, yeah, they're, they're probably I didn't think I was going to have this morning, but there we go. Um, <laughs> So she did not drive a Holden Commodore just to no, just to make exactly. certain. Just to just to make absolutely sure. Yes. <laughs> um, we have a, a quite a lengthy question here from Penny. I'll, I'll read through in relation to the so-called contamination events and the idea that the defence was constantly putting forward and about a lab under pressure in relation to Path West. I kept thinking while I was listening to those episodes that the judge cannot possibly accept the idea of a lab under pressure in making all these errors because that would put all other Pathwest test results from a raft of cases in the same boat and mean that appeals would be coming from every direction in the future based on the idea that all their results are error-ridden and therefore inadmissible. I flagged much earlier the idea that this accused is getting the benefit of a level of scrutiny that other accused persons do not get. And, and then she sort of asks you, Damien, what is the scrutiny for DNA testing chain of custody with other trials you've dealt with? Well, I think it's a great question, Penny, and it's, it's great to know that um, people who are listening or are, are keeping an eye on this trial are turning their mind to a lot of great um, issues. Well, what, what I should say, my view is, and I think this is the position, um, that a, a judge or a justice is not entitled to take policy considerations into account uh, it doesn't matter what the flow-on effect of the position they take in, in relation to a decision or a finding they make. Um, they just have to decide whether they accept that there's no reasonable possibility of the contamination. Um, th those tests uh, are not as simple as what I've just made them out to be, but ultimately the, the justices or the judge are the ones that have to decide whether they accept that there's no reasonable um, possibility of contamination now if the, the flow-on effect of that is that there's that, that that all those cases have to be revisited well then that's bad luck that's what the flow-on effect is so the scrutiny that dna um comes under in all trials in my view it's just my view is immense because it's a difficult science it doesn't um it doesn't lend itself to finality it doesn't lend itself to uh, a full commitment, and and, and 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 that's just my view. I mean, a lot of other people might have different views, but um, that's why it comes under such close scrutiny because because people want to rely on it, people want to um, use it as evidence that they can rely on. But it's when it's thrown into the mix as something that people can rely on, it's it's not easy. But there's certainly uh, almost a standard set of challenges that can be put to the DNA, which and and often is so. My answer to that would be, Penny, that I think people can um, accept that DNA comes under a lot of scrutiny in most all the trials that it's raised in. 
Yeah, yeah I would second that, um, given having sat in various trials over the last three years, certainly in this jurisdiction, um, DNA is very highly scrutinised within particularly murder trials and high-level um, you know, sort of cases that, that carry a very hefty sentence. It is put under the very, very tough scrutiny um, and in my personal opinion, I think the growing feeling, certainly within um, the, the you know the justice system and, and particularly on the defence side of it, is that it is very important now that um, any sort of DNA test is put under that sort of scrutiny to to maybe go against the common misconception that it is infallible and once you have DNA that that is a slam dunk for any any case because that is certainly not the case um, and very probably the, 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 the highlighting of the issues at Pathwest within the, the Claremont trial I am sure will have a f flow on effect um, in terms of how people think um, DNA works and 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 possibly um how path west operates but we'll have to wait and see on that yeah and um, i guess the reality we, we we talked about this previously and i think that it's really important for people to understand um, i'm glad that tim uh phrased his answer the way that he did because it's better coming from him than it is coming from me but <laughs> that when we receive these reports they say things like and i'm not quoting but they say things like the dna evidence is 54 million times more likely if the accused is a contributor. And on the same piece of paper, in reference to the same DNA sample, if the DNA samples come from, say, a texture, I'm looking at a texture on my desk here and I'm imagining that myself and a number of people in my office have touched this texture, and so let's just say that we're, this report is about what DNA was found on this texture, so it, it, it talks to four people that might have touched the texture, might have been the key word. And it says the DNA evidence is 54 million times more likely if the accused or one of the witnesses is a contributor. And then on the same, in the same area, talking about a different person, it says the DNA evidence is 10 million times more likely if X person is a contributor. So it just gives the, I think, gives the listeners a bit of insight into trying to calculate what that actually means. It's very difficult. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, going back to Penny's question, the reality is, should something in this trial open a can of worms, that's not Justice Hall's concern nor his consideration? That's my view. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely right. All he is tasked with doing is is judging this case. And as he must put any other consideration, whether it be for the the feelings of Mr. Edwards's families, or, or also the victims' families, and, and media, and all that other outside noise, he's just got to put it all to one side and just concentrate on what he's doing. And I'm sure that's what he'll do. Uh, we have a very interesting observation from Louise in Hong Kong who says she's interested to hear whether Justice Hall made any comments about attendees to the court needing to wear surgical masks. She's hearing in the courts in Hong Kong they've been adjourned for the past seven weeks since Chinese New Year, aside from very urgent matters, and over the past few weeks, while the judiciary has provided for a staggered reopening of the courts, they've mandated that all people entering court buildings, including lawyers and members of the public, must be wearing a mask or they're denied entry. So that's very interesting. 
Yes, it is. Um, with the uh, with the shortage of masks in, in Australia at the moment, um, we, you, might, you might struggle to find one, even if you're as a high-powered lawyer as Damien is, I say. Um, <laughs> but no, he hasn't made that decree, I've got to say, but he has um, made it very clear that he would rather people not attend. He hasn't closed the court, but he would rather public uh, the public stay away for social distancing reasons, for their own health and safety, for the, the confidence that the court can remain open. Um, and he's also, as I've said, put all the other um, uh, measures in place, including hand sanitizer that he's personally supplied and all, all those type of things. And of course, the audio um, transcripts of the proceedings. So he hasn't gone that far. Um, uh, Lois, but um, uh, if he does, then I'm sure there'll be a run on masks down in Hay Street in Perth. I'll certainly have to go and buy one because well, I need to be in the court. Good luck with that, Tim. <laughs> <laughs> uh, do you have a heads up on what's happening tomorrow? Well, talking of that, um, we will be off to China in the morning via the uh, the wonders of modern technology to take a witness from there. This is a witness um, that is employed or was employed by um, Holden, um, and he will be talking to the particular materials and fibres that were used in that make and model of car at that time. Um, but he, he was due to be in Australia, but he... he, he is now in China and obviously has to stay there for obvious reasons. So we'll be touching wood and everything else tomorrow to hope that the uh, the link for the video link from China um, is solid enough so that we can um, he hear and see that evidence um, okay. And then after that, we think um, we might get to some of the more um, important or, or prominent chem centre witnesses who will actually um, a deep dive into the guts of the fibre evidence and we might actually see some fibres up close and personal and, um, you know, com compare those, the ones found in the car, to the ones found on, on, on Jane and Kira. So that's where we think we'll be going for the rest of the week. Yeah, well, as we said, no stone left unturned. Thank you both for your time today. If you have a question, drop us a line at claremontpodcast at wanews.com.au and we hope you can join us again tomorrow for day 67 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast was produced by Kate Ryan and Alicia Preedy and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Audio files were provided from the archives of the Seven Network and the West Australian. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. For a fresh take on the news that matters, tune in to WA's newest morning show, The West Live, with Jenna Clark at thewest.com.au. The West Live not only delivers on what the day's big news stories mean for WA with hard-hitting interviews and analysis, but it will also make you smile with light-hearted chats and local gossip. The West Live, like talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.